be turning to Mark chapter 8. If you have your copy of God's Word, you're not there yet, turn to Mark chapter 8, the 17th message out of the Gospel of Mark, a series we've entitled Finding and Following Jesus. I'm pleased to uh, welcome some special guests uh, to our service today. They'll actually be here tonight speaking for us. It's, it's the Dave Varner family. Would you all stand to your feet? Let us welcome you to the Fellowship Baptist Church today. Thank you, Brother Dave. He is a former Blue Angels pilot, and I'll mention more about uh, his credentials uh, tonight, but it's very, very impressive. Uh, just the, the amount of, of time he's had in the cockpit and on combat missions and, and in leadership roles. And uh, very excited for him to be here uh, on behalf of a lead organization uh, that me and Brother Mike, my dad, are involved in here in town. He's going to be our special speaker tomorrow for a breakfast session, for a lunch session. I believe there's still some spots available if you want to register for those. 7 o'clock in the morning at the base, in the basement of Equity Bank, 12 o'clock tomorrow. And a free catered lunch, you just have to register on our Facebook page, L-E-A-D. And uh, Dave Varner will be the special guest speak, speaker there. And uh, I thought, since we're bringing him in, that I'm going to have him come talk to our church on Sunday night. And so he's going to show some footage and, and kind of connect uh, some of the principles there uh, from, from his experience as a pilot uh, to our daily lives as Christians. So bring your kids back tonight. It's going to be a great time. Uh, for everybody, I think we'll learn a lot uh, about our Christian lives and how, how that kind of relates to our walk with Christ. If you're in Mark chapter 8, say amen. amen. Have you ever committed to something and after committing to it, you were surprised by the demands of that commitment? I can remember age 15, I wanted to own my own car. Oh, so bad I wanted to purchase my own Vehicle. I had been a paper boy since the age of 11, and I thought, you know, it's my time. It's my time to get off of two wheels and get onto four. And so I saved up my money and, and, and I, I purchased my first vehicle, standard transmission, little Ford Ranger from Mike Puthers, of course. And uh, man, I, 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 thought, I thought the hard work of owning a vehicle was behind me when I got the title in my name. <laughs> then I figured out it, it costs money to keep the thing running. Fuel costs money and, and oil change costs money and new tires cost money. I'm like, oh man, I kind of I like the two-wheel approach to life. Jenny and I worked so hard to purchase our first home at 1440 South Grant. And man, we were so eager and and we signed those closing papers and we got the keys in our hands. And it wasn't long until we were encountered with how much it cost to own a home. It's really exciting until you get the first mortgage bill. And then, and then the AC breaks down. And, and then, you know, I'm not in a church-owned home, so they don't pay for those things anymore. I've got to pay for them myself. You know what else I thought of in terms of, you know, we, we, we get into commitments and didn't realize how demanding they were until we got into them. You know what else I thought of? Owning a dog. <laughs> Dogs are so cute in the pet store. They're so easy to manage in the pet store. They're so easy to commit to in the pet store. But a dog can be quite demanding when you take them out of the pet store and bring them into your living room. Why are they in your living room anyway? 
should be in the backyard. That's a demand I'm unwilling to accept at this point in my life. I feel like we talked about that before, so I'll move on. I remember getting married June 24, 2006, and I said those vows to my sweetheart for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I'm going to be honest with you. Those seemed very easy that day, right? I may just float out like, man, I can't wait to do this. And then you get into marriage and it's not long before you realize you married a sinner. Now she married one too. But those vows, boy, they're demanding. When you realize that you're not allowed to break those vows, according to God. Thank you for still agreeing with that. You get in there and it's like, oh man, I kind of, I don't know if I like this for poor thing. Or in sickness thing. Or for worse thing, I like the better and richer and healthy thing. It's hard. Or the diet and exercise plan on January 1st. It's easy to pay for the gym membership on January 1st. It's discounted rate. You can lace up your shoes and get on the treadmill easy. You can start that diet plan that that has been really popular on Facebook. And two weeks in, it's like, oh man, this is so demanding. I can't eat the pizza and I can't eat the donuts. I've got to go work out, right? We get into these situations where we underrate, underestimate the demand of a commitment. Such was the case with the 12 disciples and their commitment to follow Jesus. They were ready. They thought they were ready to commit to Jesus as his true disciples. But they didn't fully understand the demands of discipleship. They believed in Jesus. That wasn't the problem. They had that down. But they weren't quite understanding what it meant to accept the demands of Jesus. And this is why Mark starts our text with what seems like a random story at first. It's the story of Jesus healing a blind man, but in a very unique way. He didn't give the man his eyesight immediately. He gave the man his eyesight gradually. The reason why Mark places it here in the narrative is because it's a perfect picture of how Jesus was going to gradually open the eyes of his disciples in regards to what true discipleship looks like. If you're you're in connection groups this morning at 945, then you would have discussed last Sunday morning's sermon. And we discussed how the the disciples were close in proximity, but they were struggling with their perception. They developed almost the same amount of spiritual blindness as the Pharisees were, even though the Pharisees were nowhere close to Jesus. And now Jesus is going to make a transition. And he's going to begin to open his eyes, the eyes of the disciples gradually. and, And he gives them kind of an object lesson. Of what that looks like. Verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida. And they bring him a blind man unto him. And besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. And led him out of the town. When he had spit on his eyes. And put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up. This is the blind man. And said I see men as trees. Walking. In other words he got the wrong prescription from the doctor. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Now get this. Jesus healed him gradually. How many understand that Jesus could have healed this man instantly? 
get that right. The reason why he did it gradually, it was on purpose. It's not because he was running low on healing power. It's not because he was trying to be obnoxious. It wasn't because he was testing the blind man's faith. The miracle done in stages here, and in really kind of complicated stages, is meant to picture the current condition of the disciples. Their spiritual blindness. blindness, And and, and it was meant to preview how Jesus was going to deal with that. Watch here, like Jesus did with the blind man's physical sight, he's going to do with the disciples' spiritual sight. He's going to start to gradually open their eyes in the, in the latter part of Mark, gradually open their eyes to who he is and open their eyes to why he came and open his eyes to how that affects them as his disciples. And that process begins on the road to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. So you see what's happening here. The disciples are, are walking with Jesus and he asks them to get a conversation started. Who do, you, who do people say I am? What's the word out there about me? In response, the disciples told them that most people were saying that he was either John the Baptist or he was Elijah or he was just one of the other prophets. You see, most people in Jesus' day honored him. I mean, by the way, Elijah and John the Baptist are pretty favorable assessments. They were good guys. But even though they honored them, they uh, honored Jesus, they still misrepresented Jesus because we know Jesus was greater than a prophet. However, what the crowds believed about Jesus was less important to him in that moment than what his own disciples believed. This was just a conversation starter. He's going to try to open their eyes to who he is. So he asked them the question, but in a more personal way, he says, who do you say? that I am. Who do you say that I am? And in response to that question, Peter responded by by proclaiming, thou art the Christ. Jesus, you're the Messiah we've been waiting for. Now, when Peter calls Jesus Christ, he's using a regal term to identify him. So calling him Christ is tantamount to calling him God's king. And Peter got it right. That's exactly who Jesus was. He was God's king. He was the king of kings. Now, we just can't breeze past this part of the text. Because it was a big deal that Peter and the disciples believed in Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. It's a huge deal. They got it right. He was God's king. It was a big deal because the majority of people around them weren't recognizing this as Jesus' identity. And may I just say this? It's a big deal for followers of Christ today to identify Jesus correctly. Hear me, this is a big part of being a follower of Christ that you cannot bypass. You must believe today that Jesus is who he says he is. You must believe that he indeed is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one and only Savior of the world. So just let me ask you what Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe His claims to be the Messiah? Do you believe his claims to be the Son of God? Do you believe his claims to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Do you believe his claims to be the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life? 
Do you believe that today? To be a true disciple, this is where you start. You first believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Peter and the disciples, we've already seen, they got a lot wrong along the way. But they were right this time. However, as good and as accurate as their belief was in Jesus' claims to be the Christ, they were still in need of some clarification. It was kind of like the blind man that could kind of see people but could kind of see them as trees. Just wasn't quite clear yet. You see, Peter knew who Christ was. Watch this. But he didn't fully understand what that meant. He thought Jesus as the Christ, as the king, meant that he would build a widespread rebellion against the Roman government. Peter thought that all the while he was going to ride on Jesus' coattails to glory and prominence and power in this earthly kingdom that Jesus was going to set up. Jesus would be on his throne and Peter would be on the right hand of his throne. So while Peter's confession was accurate, listen, church, it was incomplete. There was something he and the other disciples were failing to see. And so Jesus is going to give them the first of what scholars call passion predictions, the predictions of his death in in the book of Mark. He's going to introduce to them an element of his kingship that they weren't expecting and that we're going to see they'd have a terribly difficult time accepting. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus said, guys, listen, I need to tell you something important. I'm going to suffer. That means I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be punched in the face. I'm going to be whipped with a cat of nine tails. I'm going to be spat upon. On top of that, I'm going to be totally rejected. The big crowds that have followed us everywhere, they're going to go back where they came from. The people that said they loved me the most are going to turn their back on me when I need them the most. And I'm going to be killed. I know you thought I'd be here forever, establish this kingdom, be be the earthly king. But there's coming a day where I won't be here. The religious rulers are going to start a movement among the people and they'll eventually order me to be crucified for blasphemy. But I won't be dead forever. After three days, I'll rise again and people will really know that I'm the Messiah. They'll really know I'm the Son of God. Now let's stop for a second. Because as New Testament believers today in 2021, we've got the full canon of Scripture. We're not in the moment. Okay, so this isn't shocking to us. We know John 3.16. We know that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. They weren't getting this yet. Their eyes weren't open to these realities yet. And so imagine the disappointment of the disciples, especially Peter, who is convinced that he knew everything there was to know about his Messiah. I can imagine Peter saying, I thought he said he was going to be a king, guys. Isn't that what you heard? Isn't that what you saw? Kings aren't supposed to wield power. Are they supposed to wield power, not fall victim to it? And how will we reign with Jesus in his kingdom if he's dead? If there's no one on the throne, then that means I'm not going to have a throne. Peter didn't understand, so he he said, Jesus, i got to have a conversation with you. I don't know how it went, other than the Bible says in verse 32, he rebuked Jesus. He called Jesus to the side and started chewing him out. Listen, Jesus, I know what the scripture says. 
I've been studying this since I was a boy. Messiah would come. He would draw people from all around the world to himself. And he would rise up and, and defeat our oppressive enemy. That's what you came to do, Jesus. I know, I know you're trying to trick us right now. And you can't be saying stuff that contradicts this because it's going to cause other people to doubt if you're really the Messiah. Do you understand how many people are counting on you? Can't you see that all of your popularity is setting up the stage for your kingdom to rise? So for crying out loud, Jesus, stop saying weird stuff like this. It's not a good look. Plus, it's not true. It's not true because we're your real disciples. We're not going to let anybody kill you. How dare they think they can lay a hand on you? I could imagine the other disciples are wondering, what is going on in that conversation? Seeing the bony pointed finger of Peter right at Jesus' eyeballs, him raising his voice red in the face. And they're thinking, how is Jesus going to respond to this guy? Now, they're not surprised Peter's doing that. But they're wondering, is he, how's Jesus going to handle this? Verse 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Did you see what he called Peter? Called him Satan. He called him Satan. It's really deep because Peter is acting like Satan. Like Satan at the temptation in the wilderness. If you remember, Peter offers Jesus a crown without the cross. Jesus offers Jesus glory without suffering. Like Satan, Peter's trying to thwart God's ultimate plan for Jesus. He thinks he has a better plan than God does. One of power and prestige and comfort and ease. Jesus explained his behavior this way. He savors not the things that be of God. He savors the things that be of men. What is he saying? The word savor means to have a taste for something. I savor the things that be of meat. Can I get a witness in here? Thank you, men. I don't savor salads. I savor meat. I savor steak. And I savor ribs. And I savor chicken. And I savor pork. And I savor pot roast. And I, and I savor chips and salsa. I savor fajitas and I, I just savor food. I just savor food. Jesus exposed, watch here, that Peter's taste was for the things of men, not of God. Meaning this, Peter savored the idea of glory. God savored the idea of suffering. Peter savored the idea of popularity, but God knew Christ needed to be rejected. Peter savored the idea of power over men, but God knew that Christ must shed his own blood for men. And do you know why Peter was struggling so much with God's plan for Jesus? Because of how it would affect him. He began to realize that, that if Jesus had to follow a path of death, then it wouldn't be long until he had to follow the same path. He wouldn't enjoy popularity alongside of Jesus. He'd be rejected by the same people that rejected Jesus. He wouldn't enjoy a life of ease that came with kingship that he had built up in his mind. He'd probably be beaten and imprisoned. He too would probably have to pay the price of death for following the, the man who claimed to be the Messiah. Catch this church. Peter was okay with following the Lord to a position of power, but not to a life of suffering. And I have found that followers of Christ today can struggle with the very same thing Peter struggled with. We have no problem believing in Jesus' claims. He's the Son of God. In fact, when I preach that, 
five, six, seven minutes ago, everybody said amen. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the King of Kings. But it becomes a problem when we have to accept that following him as the Son of God means sharing in his suffering. We want to accept the invitation to follow Jesus until it requires personal sacrifice or commitment or hardship. Because like Peter, when it comes to following God, we savor the things that be of men like ease and comfort. Not the things that be of God, like sacrifice and commitment. We desire a version of Christianity that offers us everything and costs us nothing. We don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives over time, but we don't want him to turn our lives upside down. We don't mind Jesus doing a little touch-up work, but we don't want him to do a complete renovation. We don't want him taking over our life. We just want him to make our life a little bit better. And that's when most people start backing away from the idea of really following Jesus. When it becomes clear to them that God doesn't just expect us as believers to to believe his claims, but he expects us to accept his demands. And that's the real essence of the text. Get this, disciples who believe Jesus' claims must learn to accept Jesus' demands. Please let that sink in. Disciples who believe Jesus' claims must also learn to accept Jesus' commands. If you're going to follow Christ, it's not about your ease. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your will or your position. It's about accepting the fact that discipleship is demanding. Very demanding. And any preacher or church that tells you otherwise is false. So, Jesus says, let me show you what the demands are going to be. Verse 34. When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus didn't pull any punches here, did he? He didn't soft pedal the truth. He didn't use a salesman approach where he put the benefits to following him in bold print and put the demands of following him in fine print. He said very clearly, if you want to follow me, then you must accept my demands to to deny yourself and take up your cross. So let's talk about those very honestly this morning. What does it mean to deny yourself? Most Christians think it just means I say no to that or I say no to this. No, it's more than just denying something. Denying yourself means a total abandonment of self anything. And in a culture that promotes self everything, this is quite the demand. We are to abandon self-promotion, self-ambition, self-sufficiency, self-interest, self-admiration, self-pity, self-righteousness, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, self-anything. Totally dethrone ourselves. Disciples of Christ are willing to say, hey, I deny myself and instead I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus over my family. I choose Jesus over my money. I choose Jesus over my career. I choose Jesus over my game system. I choose Jesus over shopping. I choose Jesus over the person I'm dating or the person I want to date. I choose Jesus over looking at porn. I choose Jesus over fulfilling earthly pleasures. I choose Jesus over a new wardrobe. I choose Jesus over my freedom. I choose Jesus over the popularity of my kids. I choose Jesus over what people may say or think about me. I go on but a true follower of Christ every day says this I deny myself and choose my Savior even if it cost everything 
Here's what I've seen so often. Christians try to follow Jesus without denying themselves. And they do this by compartmentalizing the areas of their lives that they don't want him to have access to. I'll deny Jesus here, but not there. I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to forgive people that hurt or offend me. They don't deserve that. I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask for a percentage of my money. I worked hard to earn it. I'll follow Jesus, but I won't adjust my priorities on Sundays. We've always done what we do on the weekends. I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to save sex for marriage. I, don't, I can't help my desires and no one else is doing it anyway. They'll follow Jesus, just not in every area of their life. But here's the truth. You can't have it both ways. There's two paths. There's self-fulfillment and self-denial. Following Jesus requires that you choose the path of self-denial. That's pretty demanding. But the demands of discipleship don't end there. Jesus has one more. He says, take up his cross. What does that mean? Well, he tells us to take up his cross because to follow him means to be willing to be humiliated like he was humiliated on the cross. Be willing to sacrifice like he sacrificed on the cross. Be willing to suffer like he suffered on the cross. Be willing to ultimately die like he died on a cross. And history and church tradition tell us that many of those who followed Jesus that, 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 that were on the earth right here when they heard his words and then Mark's first readers, many of them ended up doing just that. You and I might not have to die by way of martyrdom for our faith. But if you're really following Jesus, hear me please. You will face suffering. If you're really following Jesus, you will feel the tension of sacrifice. Which begs the question, when was the last time it cost you to follow Jesus? By the way, being here on a Sunday morning doesn't cost you anything. I'm glad you're here. But in America, a lot of people go to church on Sunday morning. So let's not pat ourselves on the back saying, I'm a disciple because at 11.41 a.m. I could have been all kinds of places, but I chose church. I'm talking about real sacrifice. I'm talking about real commitment. When have you felt that strain of giving something up because of a choice you made to accept the demands of discipleship? You felt that strain, that tug between your spirit and your flesh, and you chose God's word, self-denial over self-fulfillment. Listen, if there's been no pain, there's been no death. If there's no sacrifice, there's no commitment, there's no cross. C.S. Lewis put it best. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. That's what it means to take up his cross. And notice Jesus said this, take up his cross. This is an important detail because that word take indicates that dying is a choice we make. Now, this is opposite of how we phrase it so often. We often say this, it's just my cross to bear. So when something difficult comes our way, we just say it's like a, a comfort thing. Well, it's just my cross to bear. Pray for me, please. So our neighbors play loud music on the weekends. It's just our cross to bear. We have slow internet speeds in our town. <laughs> just our cross to bear. We got to wait 35 minutes for a train on Wednesday night on my way to church. It's just my cross to bear. We have in-laws that are a real piece of work. It's just 
our cross to bear. I got to sit in the parking lot of Hobby Lobby and wait for my wife to get done. It's just my cross to bear. The idea is this, that, that, that through no choice of your own, you have to deal with an especially difficult situation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. For the follower of Christ, a cross is not forced upon us. It's taken up. We don't bear a cross. We willingly pick it up and carry it for the cause of Christ. I don't know about you, but at first this kind of preaching, this, this kind of, I don't know, urging you to, to, to take up your cross, that kind of sounds like an invitation to be miserable. I mean, is that what, what it really means to follow Jesus, Pastor Tyler? I mean, your, your sales approach just isn't very good today. We wake up every morning and commit to misery. Give me that cross. Come on, pain and suffering. Come my way. Is that what it means? Not at all. See, there's a surprising side effect to dying to ourselves. Because when we die to ourselves, we discover true life. So in, in this twist of irony, we find that giving up our lives gives us the life we so desperately wanted all along. That's what Jesus says in verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In this direct context, here's what Jesus is saying. By accepting the demands of discipleship, as hard as they are, you experience life. But by rejecting the demands of discipleship because they're too hard, you lose life. It's a paradox that I think we have a hard time believing in our head, but we've got to accept by faith in our heart. When you deny yourself, when you die to yourself, your real life actually begins. You find real life and you find real joy and you find real peace and you find real abundance, not when you're comfortable and not in the ease of life and not at the conveniences of life, but when, the, when you're fulfilling the true purpose of life, living for Jesus. So i got to ask you this. Are you willing today to accept the demands of discipleship? Are you willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to take up his cross? It's not good enough to merely believe in Jesus' claims that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's the Christ. Oh, that's a good thing. That's where following Jesus begins, but it doesn't end there. True disciples believe Jesus' claims, but they also accept Jesus' demands no matter what it may cost them. Well, Pastor Tyler, that's an awful lot to ask. I'm not sure I can accept those demands, at least at this point in my life. I might need to ease into this. Not quite sure I'm ready to say no to this and yes to this or yes to this and no. To, I, I don't know if I can go there quite yet. Well, before you procrastinate any longer... Before you say no to Jesus another Sunday, before you reject the demands of discipleship because they're just overwhelmingly difficult, consider the consequence for doing so. Verse 38. Wherefore, or whosoever therefore, shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Jesus comes back, please listen, there will be shame upon the disciple 
who chose to not accept the demands of discipleship. A follower of Christ that identifies who Jesus is without accepting what Jesus demands will one day be ashamed. They'll be ashamed that they chose a life of self-fulfillment instead of a life of self-denial. They'll be ashamed that they chose their comfort over his cross. So we're basically left with this conclusion. For those who accept the demands of discipleship, I'll predict your life. You ready? Suffer now, glory later. It's an accurate prediction based on this text. You accept the demands of discipleship. And by the way, I'm not trying to sell Jesus or I would skip this passage. Suffering now, glory later. For those who reject the demands of discipleship, I'll predict your life. Comfort now, shame later. It's your choice. Suffering now, glory later. Comfort now, shame later. You can't have both. And I found that Christians in America today are people who say they're Christians today. They, they want to follow Jesus on their terms. I'll follow Jesus. I'll go this far. And so they create this like, they create their own demands. They say, Jesus, I trust you to save my soul, but let me rule my life. Because if I really start letting you rule my life, then I've got to give up too much. I've got, to, I've got to change too much. I've got to sacrifice too much. I'm just not ready for that. And so they want eternal life. They want eternal life. But they also want comfort in life. And sometimes following Jesus, listen, frankly, this morning during the, the singing, I was very comforted. Sometimes it can be joyful and comfort. I'm not saying that you sign up to follow Jesus and all of a sudden your life gets miserable. But there will be demands placed upon you as a disciple that previous to being a disciple, you weren't used to fulfilling. And you need to know ahead of time, before you sign the dotted line, you need to know what you're committing to. Because the Christian life, I found it, it's a lot easier to start than to maintain. It's really easy to believe in Jesus' claims. But boy, when we have to start accepting his demands, that's when we realize, whew, this is hard. And a lot of Christians back away from that. Oh, how I wish I could be right with God and not talk about his demands today. I wish. I just, I, I just am pragmatic in nature, so I don't want to tell you how hard the Christian life might be for you. I want to tell you, just believe in Jesus and you have the best life ever. If I'm honest to God's word, I can't do that. Because he talks about taking up a cross. And a cross has never been symbolic of comfort. I know we wear it as jewelry and have it as ornaments and pictures today. And we tried to dress it up. But hear me, folks. It is a symbol of suffering. And if you're not willing to suffer and sacrifice and die to yourself, and deny yourself, you are not really following Jesus. And unless something changes, you will be ashamed. Why? Because you will realize very quickly that you chose to live for now 
and not later. And the reason that'll be so devastating is because the later side of eternity is a lot longer than the now side of eternity. And it will dawn on you, why in the world did I put all my eggs in the baskets of this earthly kingdom and not live for God's kingdom? What part of God's demands on your life are you refusing to accept? Muhammad Atta was born to a wealthy family in Egypt. He studied architecture at the University of Cairo, where he was a top student. He later studied at the Hamburg University of Technology in Germany. He got married and ended up working in urban development. In the early 90s, Atta began experiencing experimenting rather with extremist Islam. By 1999, he was selected for a mission that involved piloting an aircraft. He was asked by Osama bin Laden to pledge loyalty and fulfill a suicide mission that would kill not just himself, but thousands of Americans. Ought to agree. Two years later, after extensive training, Muhammad Atta was seated in seat number 8D on American Airlines Flight 11, the plane that he would fly into the North Tower at the World Trade Center that morning, where he would end his life and thousands of others. I'm sure as I'm even saying this right now, you remember where you were if you're alive during the events of 9-11. I was a senior in high school in my classroom when that happened. If you're anything like me, at some point in that day and in the days following, you thought about the hijackers of the planes. Guys like Muhammad Atta. To me as a senior in high school, I couldn't fathom men who had pledged such loyalty to such a wicked tyrant and murderous terrorist like Osama bin Laden. Would even kill themselves and many others for him. Yet in light of the message this morning, if Muhammad Atta could believe the claims of Osama bin Laden and accept such wicked demands, we should be able to do the same for Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't follow a wicked, selfish, murderous tyrant. We follow a perfect, resurrected Savior who gave his life for us. So yes, without apology, I say Jesus has demands. But I also say they are so worth accepting today because he is so worth following. We ought to be willing to do anything Jesus expects of us because of who he is. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye.